Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Pretty dress up clothes to wear Bright bows, cute hair Are just a part of her story That uh, is Kurt Elling uh, and uh, Jimmy Green. I, I thought I was going to have trouble getting through this whole show without crying. I'm having trouble getting through the first 30 seconds. Uh, that's Anna's Way by Jimmy Green. Uh, it's about his daughter. Uh, I think most people who live around Connecticut know that she was one of the children uh, murdered uh, at Sandy Hook uh, in 2012. We're going to talk today um, about grief. And grief is a thing. It's a word we, we sling it around a lot. But this thing that I didn't quite understand, I thought grief was just being really, really sad. Um, and I, to, to, to do this show and tell you why we're doing the show, I'm going to have to tell you a little something about me. If you listen a lot, you probably guessed a little bit of this. But so two, the two people closest to me, really, my partner of many years, the woman I love and live with, and my son – have both been terribly, terribly sick. My son was diagnosed with a really terrifying illness uh, on July 1st uh, of last year. So we're uh, 11 months into the treatment of this illness. And, you know, the outcome is still something we don't know. But even in the course of the treatment, uh, a lot of things have been lost that really can't be brought back. <clears throat> there have been certainly some days and nights where I thought uh, he, he might just slip, or, slip away right then and there. And then November 10th, my significant other, my partner, the woman I love and live with, went in for what we thought was going to be fairly routine heart surgery, if there is such a thing. And she's never come home since then. She's still, she's been in a series of hospitalized settings. A whole series of things have gone wrong. And her future is also very uncertain. And a lot of things I think are probably not recoverable at this point. So over the course of the last few months, I've had these moments one night when she called me, a lot of this took place, you know, during COVID. You couldn't go see the person. Uh, the hospitals were closed. You know, there were months where I really couldn't even talk to her. Uh, she couldn't speak very well because of her illness. But she called me one night because she thought she was going to die that night, not, not unreasonably. And we did say goodbye that night. Another night, I remember, in terms of my son. And in each case, something kind of burst loose inside me that was grief. 
And I realized I didn't know prior to that what grief was. It's like this dark animal that just bursts out inside you. That's what it feels like to me anyway. This thing that's inside me, it's like thrashing its dark tentacles around inside me. And I thought, oh, that's grief. I had no idea. Um, I thought I knew what it was. So we're going to talk to somebody else who has uh, a deep acquaintance with this subject, and that is Nelba Marquez-Green. She is the mother of Anna, and she is someone who has carried forward the the story of what happened in Sandy Hook in, in 2012. She's the director for community advancement at Central Connecticut State University, a licensed marriage and family therapist, and the founder of the Anna Grace Project. Uh, and she's with us now. First of all, Nelba, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Thank you for having me. I, I guess I want to ask you a question based on what I just said. I mean, prior to December 14th, 2012, did you know what grief was or, or were you in the kind of same – I mean, I, I lived through the death of my parents. I had some very bad things happen that made me very, very sad. But I don't know. Did, did you become acquainted, I guess, with kind of a different, a different creature called grief? Well, first, before we get started – as someone new to your story, I just want to stop and acknowledge that. Thank you for sharing that with me, with us today. I think the only way we can bring awareness to this thing that is grief and this living with grief is if we share our stories. But all too often, we are reluctant to share them yeah. um, for whatever reason. We, we just tend to really focus on recovery or overcoming and we don't like to talk about that dark, I think you said dark animal or dark yeah. night. Yeah, it feels, it feels uh, like an animal. Uh, it feels to me like an animal uh, sometimes inside. Yeah, and everyone experiences it quite differently. I've heard lots of descriptive terms to talk about grief. But one thing is universal. And that is that the person who is experiencing this feeling has had to let go of any perception of normal or how they thought their life would be. That's pretty universal. And that's where that grief comes in. So you with your experiences that you just shared, me with, you know, sending a child to school and not getting her back and growing a survivor. It is those are two examples, right? Of and, and it can happen very suddenly. You know, um, mine was very suddenly, or it can happen over time with a, a prolonged or illness or uh, an experience like that, but no matter how it happens, the universal is it requires a letting go of what we thought our lives would be like. Nobody wakes up in the morning and expects, you know, a tower to come down. Nobody wakes up in the morning ex and expects that's the day a mass shooting happens in the workplace. Nobody wakes up in the morning when they go to a routine medical appointment and expects to hear let's run more tests mm -hmm. right so it is a letting go of what we believed would be our life and a kind of a realization that that's not what will come i think we also we live in a culture of solutions you know and so yes. so, so the, the tower comes down and there's well we're going to get those guys who brought the tower down you know and that'll fix it and and there's a sense that you know if you think about what our culture looks like the movies and television shows we watch most of them come to some kind of conclusion or solution. There's this notion that, yes, ultimately there will be a day where this is no longer the case. But that's not, I don't think, how grief works, Nova. It isn't how grief works. And also I want you to notice 
between the time we have this conversation and the time that there's a next national tragedy, it's not going to be a very long time. Mm -hmm. And I want you to notice how quickly the shouts of resilience and it, and I'm not suggesting it comes from a bad place, but it comes from our natural need and inclination to find solutions. So that from the shooting to the time we were exclaiming new town strong, that was probably a matter of hours, Mm -hmm. right? And we do that with every tragedy and with every situation because in part of what you said, that we are a community that looks for solutions. And I'm not quite sure that not allowing space for grief and for hurt and for pain and for the existence of those things is solution focused for the griever, maybe for those people watching for whom our pain is too difficult to bear. It's a solution for them, but it certainly wasn't a solution for me to hear Newtown strong when I wasn't feeling really strong at all. Yeah, it's almost like there's no emotional or intellectual market for this, for what we're talking about right now. I think even of you know one of the hospitals that's been involved in in my family situation, they have this wonderful commercial that you know about cancer with people holding up bicycles and singing "Everybody Wants to Be." You've seen this commercial, and it's it's a very exuberant, promising commercial. And, and I get why you would do a commercial like that because you you do want to say, look, you know, that we're good at what we do, you know, we're we're good at what we do, and we can help you. But it, it's hard to imagine how you could ever do. The equivalent of that that really acknowledged that it is, first of all, okay to be sad and you're just going to be incredibly sad sometimes about certain things. It's like we don't – we don't haven't really created much space to have that conversation. We haven't and I get, like you, the need for those commercials. Without hope, we have very little. So we have to create spaces for hope but also we need to create spaces for – when we are in this deep place and I find there's one group of people that really does this really well. And that's hospice workers. If you ever sit down and, and speak with people who are in hospice or end of life doulas, they know how to sit with pain. Mm-hmm. They know how to sit with pain so well, and they can actually hold both hope and darkness and they can hold the importance of witnessing really well, because that's what grief needs. Grief needs accompaniment. And and, and hospice folks do that really, really well. Every once in a while, I, I meet someone who, who really gets it. And when I explore, they usually have lost someone too, and, and really have made that transition from, oh, we got to find a solution to this, to I'm going to bear witness to this. I want to talk a little bit about faith, because uh, you're a person of faith, and if it's okay with you, too, because I just know this song is important to you, we might play in the background Thank You by Richard Smallwood and Vision. So I've kind of come and gone from church, but obviously this is a time, you know, when you're facing grief, incredible loss, that you turn there. But I, I don't know, Nelba, for me, it's also a time where I, I've, I start out thinking, why am I here? You know, what? why have I been selected uh, why have the people that I love been selected for such such dire things to happen? And obviously the Bible is full of stories. I know you've mentioned uh, Noah and Job. I, I've found myself thinking a lot about and, and going back over Job. But I, I don't know. I mean, it's to me, it's a very double-edged sword. It's a source of comfort, but it's also, I, I find myself saying, I, just, I thought this, I thought you were going to not let this happen to me. But I guess that's not and, really what it, what it what the promise is. <laughs> no, it isn't, and it's especially when we've done things. I mean, we're we're, we're decent human beings, right? We, yeah. 
we, we haven't hurt anyone. We, we try to live our lives in, in a good way. We, we, maybe we, we, you know, in our family, I, I looked, I remember looking at Jimmy and saying, we go to church weekly. We, we, we tithe, we give money. We we're, we're good people. How could we have found ourselves in this situation? But the promise of faith isn't that bad things won't happen. The promise of faith is that hopefully faith will offer comfort when those bad things do happen. And, and that's what we have found. I'm really glad that that wasn't something, a process we started after, that that was kind of a foundation we had before. Because I personally, for our family, and again, I don't go around pushing people into a belief set that, that they're not ready for or don't have or don't want to have. But I'm personally grateful that we had that because I don't know how we'd still be standing without. Um, Thursday actually will be the 4,000th day that we have lived after the shooting that took our daughter's life. Mm. And I don't think we would have lived 4,000 days without our uh, faith foundation. Yeah, I think one of the things that I've, I mean, I certainly, I had a night where I kind of walked out in, in, in the yard and started talking to God and, and saying, I mean, I, not exactly what you just described, but kind of like, geez, I really have tried to take this so seriously, you know? And, and I mean, one thing that I think that I had to sort of face is it's not, I don't know, it's not Christ church of insurance, you know, you're not buying some kind of policy that's going to keep these things away from you. Uh, although I think that was almost the way I was thinking. How come I've been paying my premiums to you? You know, how come this is, is happening? Um, but then the other thing, the other thing that I think that you've said it, that I think is really profound, I'd like you to talk about it a little bit, is somehow or other, I mean, this song is called Thank You, and you still have to be able to somehow or other get to a place where where you could say those words, thank you. Uh, and I, maybe you can just sort of reflect on that a little bit. I will tell you that in the months before um, we moved back to Connecticut from Winnipeg, Manitoba, our church at the time, White Ridge uh, Baptist Church of, of Winnipeg, started a study, and it was a study on the book of Job. And I remember our pastor, Pastor Terry Jank at the time, said it's my responsibility as a pastor that for when to prepare you for when not if when but for when the day of calamity strikes your door that you would be able to lift your hands like Job and say i know that my redeemer lives and in the end he will reign upon the earth and i remember thinking that's really profound with no clue or context that on december 14 2012 we would be we would make the choice not be forced to but make the choice to do the same thing. And um, I really give a lot of thanks to my husband, Jimmy Green, whose song you played at the beginning mm -hmm. for also sharing that with me because one thing is to grieve alone, your individual process of grief. The other thing is is to do a process of grief with your significant other, with your partner, with your loved one. Um, grief is individual, it's also relational. How you grieve in your home with your family also is important and needs to be talked about. And we don't talk about that very much but um yes to answer your question we made that choice to raise our hands and say thank you and um i'm incredibly grateful every day for four thousand days that we have been able to do that thing well today's 3098 for thursday will be four thousand. you obviously this is the thing you just live with every single day it's not going to go away it's not going to change but of the two of us your voice is a lot stronger right now you know you obviously have found 
some things that allow you to put one foot in front of the other. And I, I know they aren't magic wands or, or, or anything like that, but uh, maybe you can just say a little bit about what you have done, what has helped. So it's an evolutionary process. Every day is a different day and it's not linear. That's really important for your listeners to understand. Other things get better with time. And we are very, very used to living in a culture that promotes that for many different things, right? We're a culture that believes if you work hard enough, you can get over stuff. And grief doesn't necessarily work like that. And it's not just child loss. I would want any of your listeners who, you know, is hearing me right now to understand if you're grieving a loss of parents, if you are grieving, you know, some people contact me and they say, well, my child didn't die like yours. You know, my child overdosed or my child died by suicide. This applies to you if you have lost your significant person or thing or are in the process of struggling with the potential loss of your significant person or thing. You are allowed to grieve. So one of the most helpful things for me was to give myself permission to own every single feeling I had and to not judge that or evaluate that or give it a ranking of any kind. I just let myself feel, and boy, has that been a gift. Being with other uh, grievers, being with other survivors who can guide through that process of building a community, right? And re- and no one's going to grieve exactly alike. So it's not like I'm going to meet someone, even if they were in a mass shooting, even if it's another parent from Newtown, and we're going to have the exact same process. We're not. But taking from their stories of survival, what works, and leaving behind what doesn't, and allowing spaces of non-judgment for them as well, has been incredibly helpful. So giving myself permission, building community, finding meaningful work, whether that be through volunteerism or creating programs or, you know, what, you know, I I was really fortunate. I was a a therapist before and I, and I still love that work and I continue to do work in that spirit, although not through direct service. You know, I'm really, really fortunate to have things that are meaningful for me. So finding meaning and in terms of like in your body and with your, with your mind kind of working through uh, grief and trauma, certainly moving your body, certainly feeding yourself well, nourishing yourself, Um, making sure that that you are okay and and healthy. I I don't know if I talk about this too often, but one of the strangest things that happened to my body after December 14th was that my body actually lost the ability to metabolize iron. Hmm. So I now regularly have to, and I don't know why, but there's a small percentage of people who experience funny body symptoms after a profound, significant, episode, a traumatic episode, like, like the one we had. So making sure you're checking in with your provider, that you are, are taking steps to keep your mind, body, and spirit well is really, really important. I find too often survivors want to plow through, well, I'm just going to get through this. I'm just going to white knuckle it. I'm just going to grit and bear it. I'm just going to pull myself up. And my experience is that's not usually very successful for very long before there is some kind of, I don't want to say breakdown, but um, there's some kind of negative impact on the mind, body, or spirit. Yeah, there's actually a a book, uh, you may even know it, called The Body Keeps Score. 
Yes, yes. Uh, I think the title is Brain, Mind, and Body in the Healing of Trauma. It's one of those books where you should read it, but the title also tells you quite a bit. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, yeah, I already know my body is keeping score and not in a good way at all. Uh, it's uh, An another really great one that I had just the good fortune and opportunity to kind of highlight. And some of the work I do um, for Central and the Anna Grace Project is as a new one that's right now a New York Times bestseller, and, and that's with Oprah Winfrey and Bruce Perry, and it's called uh, What Happened to You? Mm -hmm. And it's about stories of trauma and resilience, and it's just a really great read. It breaks down both narrative. You, you get to hear narrative of, of Oprah's story and maybe guests on her show and also how it connects to the brain science of what happens to us when we experience significant things. So I wanted to just talk about one last thing. I clearly we could talk for hours about this thing, and this is not a current events uh, conversation we're having right now. But I really have felt from the time that Joe Biden emerged as the clear front runner in the Democratic nomination uh, through the election process that for the first time in a very long time, we have this person who's kind of at the center of our country and the center of our thoughts a lot of times and the center of the destiny of this country, who is uniquely acquainted with grief in a way that very few presidents, I think you could go back to the Kennedy family, obviously, but in a way that very few modern presidents are. And I'm just going to play a little clip. This is him, I think, talking in 2019 to the Des Moines Register. You know, people would come up after my losses and say, I understand. And you know, they meant well knew they had no idea. How could they? They couldn't have any idea. But when someone would come up and say, I understand, and then tell me, I lost my son, my daughter, my wife, etc., um, you realize they understand. When you've been through it, what people are really saying to me when they come up and ask me or want me to hug them or just, what they're really saying, tell me I'm going to be okay. Tell me I can get through it. How, how do you get through it? It's something that... Um, that I, uh, I can't say I enjoy doing, but I know what solace I got from people telling me you can make it, in effect, because they made it. And so that's why, um, that's why I do it. People come up to me and say, I mean, literally, people will say, I don't know if you ever talked to me, they'll say, I lost my daughter 10 days ago. Would you just hug me? Men, just hug me. Let me know. Can I make it? And the extent that it gives any solace, I feel like I'm kind of paying back what people did for me. Nelba, there's just a way in which, you know, you can like his policies, you can dislike his policies, you can you can argue about things, but you can't argue about that, really, that there's a way in which he is in touch with a set of, of realities that go beyond emotional realities. You know, it really does get back to this thing that we can barely find a name for that we call grief that I, I think it's very meaningful to have a president who, you know, just inarguably is in touch with that. Joe Biden was one of the only people we met in Washington, D.C., who I clearly remember saying, you need to go home. We care about you. We are so sorry for what happened to you. But go home. 
take care of your family, love each other, get rest, because this is going to be a long, hard fight. So if you're going to do anything for me, I would want you to go home. And I look back at that. I, I think I was probably maybe incensed at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a job to do in DC. We were going to, you know, change gun laws, change mental health laws. But looking back 3,000 and some odd days later from when we first met Joe Biden, that was wise counsel. Mm-hmm. The care of and feeding of a griever is incredibly important for our long-term health and long-term output. Uh, my son is 17 now. He was eight at the, at the shooting. And I'm incredibly grateful for some of the decisions that Jimmy and I made to put our health and our well-being first, in addition to our activism and our work. But I do think, and I don't want to count my chickens before they're fully hatched. And I know Isaiah will, like any other teenager, have his struggles. But man, this kid is an honor roll student. He plays hockey. He goes to boarding school. He's got good humor. He's got good love around him and he's able to love. And I know one of the reasons that he's so successful is because Jimmy and I committed to to caring for ourselves. You know, we put some goals out there. We we worked very hard to not be divorced, right? Uh, grief and child loss kills marriages. We worked very hard to stay healthy and still have joy. So I give a lot of credit to Joe Biden. Yes, I think he is uniquely positioned to guide us in this time, regardless of what you think of his policies. And I remember clearly when he told us to go home. Well, we're going to stop there, Noble Marquez Green. But first of all, thank you for everything you said to me today. I mean, um, I'm sure a lot of listeners got a lot out of it, but I definitely did too. So um, thank you for sharing. Thank you for, for some real wisdom about this too. Thanks for just taking the time and the emotional energy to to talk about this yet another time. You shared really bravely today, and I just want to hang in there in that moment with you and say, yeah, you're going to make it. It sucks. Yes, you will make it. And I'm just incredibly thankful to you for being brave and, and having this vulnerable conversation today. And for the people who will be gifted by this, because of your brave sharing, who may also be able to open up after this moment. So thank you. All right. Well, we're going to go out with, uh, as we kind of as we went in, we're going to go out with the song Little Voices, as performed by Jimmy Green, uh, with vocals by Hartford's amazing Annika Noni Rose, uh, on Jimmy Green's album, Beautiful Life. Little voices calling. Little voices laughing. Little voices singing those precious little voices, brightening our day, stealing our hearts, shaping our lives. In the blink of an eye, they're gone. Now there's just silence where those little voices used to be. Now it's up to you. It's up to me. Will you make the choice to be a voice? Will you walk humbly, show mercy, and love your neighbor? Or hurt the neighbor who thinks differently than you do. But will you love your neighbor? Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. 
Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash elevating health. All right, we're back. And I want to say that we're uh, that was recorded a few days ago. Um, and uh, so I, I hope I'm a little bit more composed right now, although I'm not making any promises after that. Uh, but if you're listening um, on Monday the 14th between 1 and 2, we're, we're now live to talk to our second guest, Megan Devine, a psychotherapist, writer, a grief advocate. She's the founder of Refuge in Grief and the author of It's Okay That You're Not Okay, Meeting Grief and Loss in a Culture That Doesn't Understand. And then uh, more recently, or most recently, uh, How to Carry What Can't Be Fixed, which is uh, a kind of a workbook about the ideas in the, in the prior book. I, I just want to say even before we start talking, <laughs> I'm like the last person you give a workbook to. I'm just sort of not like the guy who's going to be able to draw a picture of how he feels on this page or write something inside a circle or outside a circle. But I'm like really addicted to this book. It's like I, like I can't stop messing around with it. I'm, I, this is the workbook for people who hate workbooks. So uh, I don't know negative whether that's a good blurb or not, uh, but uh, it's really an incredibly effective book. Welcome to our show. Why, thank you. And I love that blurb for my book. I think that's perfect. <laughs> so um, let's talk about, you know, how you've come at this subject. We should just say, obviously, you, you've got, as they say, skin in the game in this subject. The reason that you're writing about it, advocating about it is because you've been through it, right? Correct. Yes. So I've been a psychotherapist for, oh, gosh, 20 years or so now. Um, and I did some pretty heavy work in my practice. But my partner died in an accident in 2009. And the the grief that unspooled from that was orders of magnitude bigger uh, than anything I'd experienced before that. So yeah, I mean, I, I, I like how you phrase that. I have skin in this game. It's important to me. Um, and, you know, and even just your voice there, as you talked about it, makes it clear something that you say, which is loss gets in, in, uh, integrated, not overcome. I mean, uh, this isn't a thing that you overcome and get over and then you go on with your life and, and you still don't gasp uh, at the remembrance of it. I mean, it's it's still there with you, obviously. Obviously, yeah. And, and this is a this is sort of a, a misnomer, a, a misidentification or a miseducation or something in the culture that this idea that if you do grief, quote unquote, correctly, um, it won't bother you anymore. There is never going to be a time when I'm okay with the fact that my partner died in an accident in front of me. It's never going to be um, okay that Nelba's child and a bunch of other people were killed in, um, in an act of violence. Like there's, your person stays dead. So you will grieve in some form, in some way, as long as you love that person, which means a lifetime. I think it really sort of gets at a really almost ontological anxiety that we have too, which is 
the notion of, of the stability of self, you know, that most of the time, one of the ways that we sort of proceed through life is, okay, this happened, that happened, this happened. I'm still me, you know, but this happened and that happened. Okay, this other thing just happened, but I'm still me. And then when you get to this, I think there's this whole other dialogue, inner dialogue you have, right? That am I still me? Am I mm. like, you know, maybe you could say a little bit about that. Sure. I think with losses that sort of rearrange your personal universe. Now, I'm not going to define what those losses are because that's a very individual, personal thing. But losses that sort of rearrange your understanding of the world and the way things work, your relationship to other people, um, to the world, and to yourself, they're going to change. And that sort of deep questioning, am I still the person I was? Is there a bridge between the person before and this person after, that is like personal inquiry that I think more people would benefit from exploring because I I think questioning, am I still that person? Can I still be that person? Is a a question that a lot of people carry. And I think it's okay to to normalize that self-inquiry. You know, there's, there's, as you suggest in your writing, part of the problem here is we haven't really created good spaces uh, in our social interactions, uh, in, in life as we live it, for the expression of grief, the discussion of grief, right? It's something people would maybe just as soon not get into. Yeah, I think it's something that you you think we've sort of solved already, like all of our movies, all of our books, all of our pop psychology, they're like, do these three steps, five steps, do grief correctly, and you'll get your happy ending. And that lie, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that misinformation has made a lot of us who want to be supportive to the people we care about, it's, it's sort of given us the wrong narrative. It's given us faulty tools. So when we look at somebody we care about who's struggling or wrestling with grief of any kind, we think, okay, cool. I need, I need to help you be resilient and bounce back and put this loss behind you. Like we, we've been sold a faulty narrative and we're trying to, (laughs) we're trying to be supportive based on bad information. And in one of the things that I say a lot is like, it's, it's not our fault that we haven't created skillful ways to respond to grief We've been taught the wrong ways to do that. It is our responsibility, however, once we know that those old ways are not helping, to learn better skills and better ways of supporting ourselves and supporting the people we care about when grief upends your life. You know, your your books uh, are um, full of sort of caution, cautionary words about just things that aren't helpful to say, p- things that people kind of naturally say. I have to say in my own experience, I've probably committed more of those errors than I've, <laughs> than I've had them committed against me. For the most part, the people around me have been pretty subtle and, and pretty um, sensitive and smart and, 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 and things like that. I'm sure I've done some of the dumb stuff that's, <laughs> that's in the book. But, but it's, you know, it is maybe dumb stuff. Maybe that's the wrong way, way to characterize it because it's also so people, this is what they know. This is how yeah. they know to be helpful. They're not trying to be jerks. They just, this is what they've been given in their toolbox. Yeah, I think I think there's a small percentage of people who are trying to be jerks and they're honing that skill. But for the most part, um, people really do think that what they're doing is helpful. You know, most people don't have nefarious intent. And, and you're right. Like, I mean, I do this stuff for a living and I say stupid stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. I think the the thing that's changed for me, hopefully, is that I I hear it when I say it and I 
I'm comfortable enough um, with being awkward that I'll say, wow, that was really not helpful. I'm going to start over. I mean, you right. want to you want to maybe mention specifically one or two things just so people sure. kind of get the idea. Yeah, yeah. So uh, let's say that you're you're texting with your best friend and they come back with like, I can't actually talk right now. Like my my sister just died, mm-hmm. and so as the support person, you're like, oh shoot, like what am I supposed to do? And you feel really awkward and really helpless. So you say something like, well, at, at least you at least they had a really good life. Like I bet they're at peace now. Mm-hmm. Right. What we're trying to do is remove somebody's pain for them. And we can't do that. Mm-hmm. We do all of this stuff to remove the person's pain for them. Um, things we say, like, uh, think of the happy times. You have to live for them. They wouldn't want you to be sad. All of these things we say, they kind of have a, a ghost sentence attached to them, mm-hmm. which is so stop feeling so sad. So stop being upset by this. Right? There's a subtext there that even though we don't say it out loud is very, very clear to your grieving person. My emotional response to this loss is too hard for you and you'd like me to clean it up now. Right? Yeah. I, I think another thing that you've really illustrated very helpfully to me, helpfully to me is there's a way in which we think of grief. We kind of put it in one canister. Grief is an emotional state, um, and what and it's a specific kind of emotional state. And and what you I think illustrating your books is no, it's a welter of different manifestations ranging from yes, emotions like anxiety, uh, which we don't or in anger, two things that we don't necessarily uh, link to grief, and to uh, per my conversation with Nelba a few minutes ago, really you know powerful somatic expressions of this. I mean, people, I don't know, I had a friend who was like immunosuppressed, you know, for a really long time uh, after the loss of a spouse. I mean, the maybe say a little something about the, these these physical manifestations. Yeah. And, and again, we go back to sort of what is the what is the entertainment narrative around grief? And it's somebody is sad and they're only sad or they're kind of angry in an ugly way until they decide to live again and then they're happy. So we've got this idea that happy is the same as health, right? And anything that's not happy is a problem. So there's one piece. The other thing is because when many people talk about their experience of grief, they get those platitudes or they get those, um, maybe you should talk to somebody so much so that they're not, we're not really hearing real stories of grief out there in the world. And this is why I talk about um, the realities of grief so much is because I, I want people to know that grief is normal. It's uncomfortable. It's messy. It's complicated. It's complex. It's all of these things, but it's normal. And it's not a sign that you're doing anything wrong. And the other reason that I talk about sort of the different aspects of grief is is to sort of broaden our, our idea of what grief is. It's, it's being sad, sure. Um, a lot of people cry. A lot of people don't cry, and that's also okay. Um, you might get angry. You might be confused. Um, the physical effects of grief are something that we really don't talk about very often, and those things can really um, add a layer of stress or confusion to somebody who's grieving because they're like, why can't I read anything anymore? My attention span is terrible. Um, So reading comprehension can be effective. You can have cognitive changes, memory changes. For a lot of people, they get very forgetful, right? Like I remember when Matt first died, I had to um, put post-it notes everywhere to remind me if I had fed the dog that day 
because I couldn't remember anymore what had happened even an hour previous. So there are a whole host of things that are within the sphere of normal, honestly healthy responses to loss that we really do need to start talking about so that people don't think they're doing it wrong. Yeah. I, I loved I loved what Nelba, I just want to yeah. put one more thing in here. I really loved what Nelba said towards the end there of like, check these things out with your healthcare providers. Just because physical responses to grief are, are normal doesn't mean we don't want to have somebody else's eyes on it so we can make sure that your body is supported in the ways that it needs to be while you are going through this. That's a really great point. Uh, no, I was just going to affirm <clears throat> that there you are not the only person who puts post-it notes up like you know, on the kitchen cabinets <laughs> saying really basic kinds of things. Uh, you might even be talking to somebody who was almost late to tape a little part of this show because you had to go back to the house like four times uh, to get things. <laughs> uh, so, yes, that's I think the confusion and disorientation is, is very yeah. much a part of all this. Either that or I need to see a neurologist, too. Uh, all right. So let's uh, take a little break here. We're going to be, be back. By the way, the thing about reading is also really true. And that's the great thing about the workbook, how to carry what can't be fixed, is, you know, it's not there's not as much reading and you get to draw pictures and stuff like that that I think you might feel a little bit more cognitively able to do than, say, read yeah. 40 pages in a clip. Anyway, let's exactly. take a break. Let's come back with more Megan after this. All right, time to see some thank yous. Um, Kat Pastor is technical producer of this show and uh, always the technical producer of this show, and that's the way we like it. Uh, and this really is Betsy Kaplan's last show as senior producer. I mean, unless she comes back, she, she may come back someday. Um, she may be the prodigal producer who comes back. Uh, in which case, we will serve the fatted calf to her, or whatever we're supposed to do in that parable. Um, so, uh, but anyway, she is producing uh, this show, even though. Theoretically, she's off. She's done. You know, this is the most Betsy Kaplan thing in the world to do is to like, produce one more show kind of after you've already kind of left. Anyway, um, but obviously also the perfect person to be producing this show. All right. So onward. Uh, Megan Devine is with us, psychotherapist, writer, grief advocate. Uh, her books include It's OK That You're Not OK, Meeting Grief and Loss in a Culture That Doesn't Understand, and more uh, recently, the uh, very helpful workbook. It's more than just a workbook. But anyway, How to Carry What Can't Be Fixed. So, you know, yeah, we're going to have to just jump ahead. There's like hours and hours to talk about. And, and I, mean, I think we've already established that uh, we, you can't fix yourself uh, exactly, but you don't have to stay right where you are uh, either at, at the time, at your worst moments in your worst abyss. So we, can we talk a little bit about sort of what, what there is in the toolbox to go forward? Yeah, I, I really like the distinction between pain and suffering. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, I think we have this, and there are binaries all over human culture and, and binaries don't work with, with humans. Um, but this idea that we have that, that you're either all healed up from your grief or you're sitting in a basement somewhere wearing sackcloth and, and sobbing into your skirt, right? Like you either do it all correctly and put it behind you or you're doing it wrong. And that, that doesn't work. 
there's a whole vast middle ground in there. And once we start, once we stop talking about grief as a problem to be solved, we can start talking about what tools actually help you survive, what is here for you to survive. And that's where I talk about that difference between pain and suffering, right? So the pain of grief itself is not something we can make go away. Pain needs to get tended, right? So those are things like, what do you do to help yourself um, in those really big grief spikes or those really difficult moments? How do you um, tend to the organism? Are you eating, drinking, sleeping, moving your body in the ways that you're able, right? All of those things that help you be strong enough to withstand what you have to withstand. So that's one set of tools. Talking about suffering. So suffering is like all of the extra added stuff that gets lumped on on top of your grief. So um, dealing with the administrative duties of death, right? Calling customer service to have your kid's cell phone cut off is a really horrible thing to go through mm. when, when your child has died. Um, anxiety is really big inside grief, right? Especially when um, loss is sudden, not always with that or not only with that, but um, I find especially when the loss is sort of unexpected, that can make the whole world feel very unsafe and that can set people's anxiety off, right? Like who's going to be next, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Um, so dealing with things like anxiety, what tools do we have to um, help ourselves calm down when you can no longer do things like, you know, some of the classic tools inside um, anxiety work are like reminding yourself that you're safe, that these bad things you imagine are unlikely to happen. When an unlikely event has already happened to you, you can't use those tools anymore. You what? can't calm your brain down by saying this stuff is unlikely to happen when it already has. So we have to start looking at how do we use tools to help decrease the suffering inside of grief, like anxiety and um, weird or uncomfortable interpersonal situations? How do we deal with things like interrupted sleep, intrusive thoughts? all of these things that make surviving the reality of loss even harder. That really is where we have tools and skills. If we don't use tools to eradicate the emotions of grief, but instead we use the tools to support the process of grief, I think we have a, a much better chance of um, caring for ourselves well and caring for each other well. There's actually a line in your book that just uh, just I made it my thought for the day today. I think you say you're paraphrasing uh, paraphrasing Eckhart Tolle, but it's uh, something along the lines of anxiety is your imagination inventing a future that you don't want. So let's not so let's not do that. Um, and, and boy. <laughs> You know that that's kind of up on it's up on my mental wall today. It's such a great idea. Isn't that a great one? It's so good, and it this is the thing. Like anxiety is a very bad predictor of outcome, right? Mm -hmm. Our brains are designed they 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 create disaster scenarios so that um, like the the brain correct <laughs> um, creating disaster scenarios is like a way to protect the organism. Like, what would you do if this happened? Okay, then mm -hmm. what would you do if this happened? right? That's sort of part of the brain's mechanism is to explore disaster as a way to protect the organism, but that doesn't, that doesn't help you. Like you're never going to run out of disaster scenarios. So instead it's like this conscious practice, this conscious effort of saying, I'm going to vote for the reality or the outcome that I most want. 
And if I'm having a hard time imagining that reality, or just to be blunt about it, sometimes there is no quote unquote good outcome. Um, let's turn our minds to best possible outcome, or um, I'm going to imagine to, to marshal the, the visual aspects of my brain to say like, what would a, a beautiful or well-supported or um, well-skilled or something outcome look like for me, right? Mm-hmm. Like you, you can't battle disaster scenarios in your brain. You can't do it. It won't work. But let's vote for the best possible outcome given what is yours to live. Yeah, Ibsen right. said to live is to battle with trolls in the vaults of heart and brain. But you don't want to be in an Ibsen play. You, you, you I don't. Yeah. No, I really don't. And and I do think also, yeah, I think another, we're almost out of time here, unfortunately, well, but we really, uh, but there is a way in which you just have to kind of recalibrate your baseline too, you know? I yes. mean, you're not at the old baseline. You, you got to pick a new one? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've never had to live through this loss before. Even if you've lived through multiple losses, you have never lived through this one. We don't know who you're going to be. We don't know how you're going to carry it, mm-hmm. right? So acknowledging that to yourself and being curious about who you are, what you might need, um, what does a beautiful life look like for you as you live this? We don't know the answer to that, but I think being curious about that answer is a really good way forward. Some of us who are going through this uh, together, we have a slogan, uh, which we stole from Friday Night Lights. It's clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. And it doesn't mean you can't lose in the sense that, you know, the outcome will be exactly what you want. But you can't lose. I think if you put yourself in a certain kind of frame of mind about all this, um, you know, you'll be able to salvage some certain kinds of uh, victories long term. So that's like what we say. You know, we're going to have to stop. uh, And I regret that because there's so much more to say. But for that reason... Uh, if you're facing this or, I mean, everybody's going to face some version of it someday. So the book is It's Okay That You're Not Okay, Meeting Grief and Loss in a Culture That Doesn't Understand. And if you're already in the middle of things and you're finding it really hard, I would recommend the other one, How to Carry What Can't Be Fixed, A Journal for Grief. Uh, this is something that allows you to write and draw and explore your own feelings and maybe create strategies for getting through the days. Uh, so uh, thanks to Megan. Thanks to Nelba. Thanks to Betsy Kaplan and Kat. Thanks to you for listening, too. I know this is a little raw compared to what we usually do, but uh, it was a show I really thought uh, we had to do. <laughs>